Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast, and today's guest is LaoY86. He does a YouTube channel about China, and he lived there, I think, uh, for 10 years in total. Kind of started out as a travel vlog where him and his friend Winston would ride around the country, kind of documenting these parts of China that most people haven't heard of or certainly haven't seen anything about, you know, Northern China, Central China, Western China, not just the big cities. Uh, and as somebody who is very interested in just learning about other cultures in general, I found it very interesting. And also because I've spent a lot of time in China myself, a lot of time meaning a couple months, not 10 years like him, but we'll talk about this more in a minute, but man, he just absolutely nails it. So if you're interested in China, I would highly suggest checking out the channel, but also just if you care about storytelling in general, he does an amazing job of it. So if you wanna make videos of any kind, if you wanna do a YouTube channel or just wanna learn how to talk about whatever your window into the world is, he is somebody you should be paying attention to. He does an amazing job. Super excited about this conversation. It does go in a little bit more of a, I don't know, less cheery direction than I usually take. But like he says, I think it was a very necessary conversation that people need to hear given all the current events happening in Hong Kong and China and all the TikTok stuff. So this is stuff that you need to hear about, even if it's not necessarily the most cheery stuff in the world. So I'm happy to bring it to you. Before we get into it, I wanted to mention a couple ways that you can support the show if you are so inclined. Number one, sharing it on social media always helps. Number two, if you really, really like us, you can support us on Patreon. Patrons get access to every podcast a week early. There's a members-only private Discord server that I'm in. There's also a way to have me review your music, your video, your podcast, your design or photography portfolio, or anything else that you might want to get my eyes on or ears on, as the case may be. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can check out the link to that in the show notes. And with that out of the way, let's get into this awesome episode. Good morning, Matt, Seamilk, Laowai86. Three names for the same person. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, I'm really excited for this one. I've been a big fan of your channel for the past couple years. Uh, and and the reason why is because I spent quite a bit of time in China from like 2000, in 2011 and 12. I used to work for Abercrombie and Fitch. So I went mm -hmm. over there to go to factories. I also went to like Indonesia and Korea and some other places, but mostly. Uh, in Guangdong province. Uh, and right. it was super interesting to me to spend so much time and time there, like in a, in, in a capacity that, you know, tourists can't go to China and hang out at factories for 14 hours a day. So I, right. I got to see a side of China that was not super enjoyable necessarily, but was a unique perspective that, uh, I really appreciated. And so then I found your channel and I saw this stuff and I was like, Yes, yes, yes. Like super amazingly specific <laughs> stuff, like the Chinese boomers with their shirts pulled up and all that stuff, you know. Right. Like, yes, this is this is the real deal. So I guess maybe how would you describe your channel to people? I, I feel like a lot of channels, especially if they've been around since like what, two thousand eleven I started, have gone through a lot of changes. You'll see like very specific channels that are niche to something. I like to think mine is niche to China, but I did go through a lot of changes. Like when I first started, it was just to show aunts and uncles, moms and dads and stuff. Like I'm not, I'm not gonna die over here. Everything's okay. You know, it's it's different than home, but everything's chill. Then it went to holy shit, I got an audience now. Let's put out some content to teach them about China. You know, what's life like? This is what my neighborhood looks like. This is what an average restaurant looks like. And then it went more into uh, societal commentary so like this is me integrating into china or at least trying to i'm now i speak fluent chinese so i can have more authentic interactions with people and kind of get into the chinese psyche and what it's like to be a foreigner here and then 
definitely more towards the critical side of the Chinese government towards the end um, when everything who did a 180 um, under the not to get too political, but under the Xi Jinping regime um, attitude towards foreigners and just life as a foreigner in general in China changed for the worse, especially uh, someone that's using a camera and commentating on anything related to China. So it's kind of that all mixed together. <laughs> Got it. Well, there's a lot there that I, I want to unpack later, but I don't actually know what brought you to China in the first place. Sure. Um, I graduated with a degree in computer science, well, actually computer information system, but I also did computer science. And I was going to get a job right, right out of college uh, doing network admin stuff. And previously, I had backpacked through Europe. So I thought that was like a, it was like a big part of my life. And the idea of just like settling down after school and just getting a job and not having time to do that again, potentially just really it wrecked me. Like I was like, I can't, I can't do this right now. So I found out that people would do these like gap year things where they would either do like, you know, fruit picking or whatever in Australia or teach English in Europe, like Ukraine or something. And I found out that you could teach English in a place like Taiwan. I was really interested in language. I kind of wanted to learn Mandarin Chinese. Um, I just thought it might be the next big thing. Put my resume up on uh, some like these ESL English teaching websites for Taiwan, but it turned out not to be hiring season. For some reason, this random company in Guangdong, of all places, called me in mainland China and they said, hey, you want a job? I mean, like the, the salary was like, God, it was like four or five hundred bucks a month or something ridiculous. Barely enough to like survive on. But for some reason, something in my head just went off and I was like, you know, a plane ticket. I'm, I'm out of here. You know, I applied for my visa and stuff. The idea of going to China actually kind of scared me. I was like, what is this place? But I mean, 10 years later, I was still there. So <laughs> that was kind of it was kind of out of boredom and not wanting to like stick around and just get a nine to five. And you met your wife there. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So she's she's she was from the first city that I worked in in Huizhou and Guangdong. Got it. And so it sounds like you never expected your channel to be what it is now. Like you didn't go into this like I want to be a YouTuber. No, I mean, at that time, I think it was it was years before I monetized anything. So it was kind of like I expected to get, you know, 50 or 100 views per video or something, maybe like it's in the first year. But people were really interested because there was like probably like five or 10 foreigners in the entire city I was in. I was in Inner Mongolia in the city called Bauto. It's like this industrial city. And there was only five or 10 foreigners living there. And to be the only dude with a camera, like actually showing what life was like there and the kind of the rougher side of it, because, you know, it is kind of it's far away from the law. It's far away from right. Beijing. It's like it's up there in the north. With the, there's some a lot of, you know, nomadic Mongolian type vibes going on, even with the Han people, Han Chinese people up there. It's a very like lawless place. So it was a fun place to film. It was a fun place to to make friends in. It was much easier to make friends up there. And they were all pretty happy to be on camera and talk about their their stories and stuff. And my students up there when I was teaching in university were really just such sweet kids. Most of them were very poor kids that would get scholarships because they did so well in their little tiny hometown in the middle of nowhere. So they'd be able to, go, be able to go to this college in this dream city to them. This is absolute dream city. The fact they can walk you know, down the road and get fast food or whatever, right. that was like a huge deal for them. So it was such a cool place to be and a cool place to show the rest of the world. And I think it changed a lot of people's minds about China at that time. And that's where my expectation of like, almost like a responsibility at that point to continue to make content to, to educate people abroad, to make China not look like this, you know, this uh, phantom, like crazy communist phantom over there. Right. I knew the societal issues. I knew the human rights abuses. I knew what was going on underneath. But at the same time, I'm dealing with human beings here that didn't choose to live under this regime. That's one of the stories, but it's not the only story to tell. Right, right, exactly. There's other stories to tell in that these are just people that live normal lives, right? It's not, it's not their choice. So all of my connections, all my friendships, some of the best times of my life were happening here. Why not share them with the rest of the world? Can you talk a little bit about kind of how you know, China is, you know, we talk about China as though it's a one monolithic thing, but, you know, I've only been to Guangdong province and even within that province, there's variation, but I can only imagine, you know, Guangdong versus Xinjiang versus any of the other places that you've been. Can you talk about just like how much cultural variation and stuff there is within China? Yeah. So the whole inspiration behind the TV shows we ended up filming, uh, Conquering Southern China and Conquering Northern China, 
the whole reason we came up with this was because like when we would ride our motorcycles outside of the city we were living in, you would just watch things change completely. You'd hear completely different dialects within a half an hour, an hour of each other, right? You would see like um, the restaurants would change and have like one specific dish to this region. And it was super, super important that they shared that with people coming in from the outside. Um, you would see minority regions where they're the completely different uh, attire, completely different clothing and stuff. Uh, musical traditions would change. Everything was completely wildly different from region to region. So if you're in Guangdong, like you said, Guangdong province in itself, if you're in the south, is Cantonese, right? It's a Cantonese region. My, my wife's Cantonese. But if you go a little bit north of the, the you know, surrounding Hong Kong type area in mainland China of that part of Guangdong, I mean, you're in Hakka regions, which are traditional Hakka people come from central China that migrated down like over the past one or two thousand years. So they have their own language and cuisine. They eat a lot more. Uh, they use a lot more chili and a lot more um, meats and thing and wheats and things like that. Things that they brought corn from central China. Um, you go all the way up nor- north near the um, Hunan border when you're still in Guangdong province. They're still speaking Cantonese, but they're they're eating really spicy food. Something Cantonese people would never touch. Right. Everything is wildly different. You go up north and a Chinese person up north, especially in this region called Dongbei, which is northeastern China. You could, you could say it's akin to Massachusetts, New York, that kind of area. Where it's cold, these people are you know twice the size as the, the people down south. They're very loud in comparison. They're, they're very bro-y. They're not shy. They're, they like... Now, if they're loud compared to Guangdong people, that's pretty loud. <laughs> and when I say loud, I mean like they're loud with their friends. It's kind of like, let's have a beer together. This is awesome, you know? Right. Whereas right. Cantonese people are not going to make those casual friendships out of nowhere, right? When you're up north, Inner Mongolia, Dongbei, these types of areas, you're making friends left and right because people are so hospitable. People have more of that bro culture. It's just, it's just, it's a wildly different place. You go to the West, go to Western China, people aren't even Chinese anymore. I mean, you're talking about Tibetan people speak their own language, have their own tradition, their own religion, their own figurehead. You go to Xinjiang, you're talking about Uyghur Muslim people that are Turkic. There's Cyrillic alphabets on the buildings and stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, like when you're in, uh, there's, there's actually regions where there's Russians that ended up in China by accident, right? These white Russian people that are actually Chinese. You know, it's, it's, it's a wildly diverse country outside of the center of the country. And even amongst the Han majority, the Han Chinese population, they have so many different variations in dialects and food and culture. That being said, to finish off of that sentiment, that is changing rapidly. I mean, this is stuff I saw from 08 until... I would say 2013, 2014 in its peak. This is like, those things were celebrated. They still existed. And now it's very much trying to Sinify the entire region. The, the government's trying to make sure that everyone is one unit. Explain what Sinify means. So, well, Sino is a, Sino is a, a term to call China. Sino-American relations. Exactly. If you say I'm a Sinophile, that means you're interested in China, right? So when you Sinify a region, it's actually insinuating that you're talking about Han Chinese, which are 90% of the population. Like when you think of Chinese person as an American, you're, you're thinking of a Han Chinese person. Correct. So when you're talking about that, that Han Chinese people are by and large a collective society, right? They've had very advanced civilization from a long time ago. They're diametrically opposed to some of the minority regions in China, like Mongolians, for example, who are nomads, you know, still to this day, a lot of them are still nomadic, right? Individualistic types. Han Chinese culture is not individualistic. Um, And it does not gel well with a lot of these kind of areas that have been absorbed into China, more or less. So nowadays, when you have like a one party dictatorship like this to maintain status quo or control, over a population, you need to make sure that everyone is more or less, you know, on the same page. So you do things like you ban uh, minority languages in schools, right? You um, start to force Xi Jinping thought or Mao Zedong thought or something like this in certain regions to make sure that everyone understands where the where the government stands on all these issues. And and, and just just to pause really quickly, you, you said on the same page in a nonchalant way. But I want to make sure that everyone's clear that you're not saying that's necessarily a good thing. This is absolutely not a good thing, in my opinion. <laughs> you, you, yeah. Okay. So let's not gloss over that just so nobody gets the wrong idea. Just in case. I mean, there's probably a lot of people that don't know who I am. I'm very much in support of the minority voice in China. That is 
one of my main goals and, and things that I focus on, especially um, with particular interest to the Mongolians because I l- lived amongst a lot of Mongolian people that I had no idea how much they were suffering under the Chinese leadership. I mean, when you have your complete identity stripped away, you're forced into a collective society, you lose your lands, you lose your, your school, you lose your language, your home, and you get threatened by you know, the People's Liberation Army that will come to your yurt village, basically, and just tell you to move or take your stuff or whatever because of that Han superiority. It's not necessarily a cultural thing at that point. It's a tool that oppressive regimes use to stamp out any sort of cultural identity amongst people that are not the same. I felt the Hong Kong thing on a somewhat personal level because I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong. Sure. And to think of, so I, you know, you've, you've, you've probably seen some of the news about Hong Kong. Like, tell me if I'm getting any of this wrong, but it seems like basically the, the big development is that now you can be prosecuted in mainland China. They can, they can uh, convict you of a crime in Hong Kong and prosecute you in mainland China under mainland Chinese rule, which to me as somebody who spent a lot of time in Hong Kong scares the shit out of me. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I'm like, fuck that. I can't imagine how terrifying that would be. This is terrifying. And I'll, I'll tell you why it's, I mean, just from a personal aspect, this is more terrifying for anyone that's, especially of Chinese ethnicity, that's spoken out against the Communist Party of China. But I was in exile in Hong Kong for about a month. You know, there's a whole story about how I had to leave, basically. But they were chasing people out left and right that spoke illy or even uh, alluded to the fact that they, they weren't supportive of the communist regime. And I, you know, Hong Kong's always been this refuge place, like for people to to hide out or to chill out, gather their thoughts and like move on to somewhere else. But now if I was to even go on a connecting flight to Hong Kong, so let's say I'm going to Japan, I travel a lot, right? So like I'm going to Taiwan, I'm going to Japan. A lot of times there's connecting flights through Hong Kong. I can be pulled off that plane and then sent to mainland China to, to be tried as a foreigner, as an American citizen. And that's this is plausible. This is not some crazy yes. conspiracy no, no. theory. No, no. I'm not a fan of conspiracy theories. This is a real law that's been signed in. It's terrifying. It's causing a mass exodus of a lot of Hong Kongers. I mean, I know, I mean, Hong Kong people have, have traditionally been quite politically active. They've grown up in a system of, of democratic values, freedom of speech, right, where they've been able to exercise those values. And then all of a sudden, overnight, after these huge protests, they, that's been stripped away of them. It's uh, it's effectively become a part of mainland China at this point. The economic freedoms are still there, but For everything now. in terms of yeah, political freedom, freedom of speech, and stuff that's been that's been stripped away. Like so Hong you Kong talk, is talk, over now, right? It's done. It's done. Yeah, absolutely. And it's done. not going back. There's you know, there's no, no, no rolling no. this back. No, that's the the worry is that it's it's a sovereign part of mainland Chinese territory, but it's been given this 50-year agreement where at least it could be a bastion of freedom on this massive continent of oppression. And that's because that's what China's become at this point. And we're sitting here watching this these protests inspired. We're like, it's very, it was super metal to see these guys go out, millions of people to go out on the streets and literally stand up to the CCP like that. Which is like, this This is like, what, 25% or something of the entire population of Hong Kong. That's what people have to understand is we're talking 2 million out of 7 million people. Yeah, and, and geographically, <laughs> it's like New York City. It's not large. No, it's, it's, a, no, it's very small. It's a massive chunk of Hong Kong going out. And, and this is not like, this is not in their nature. They're not like, no. uh, yeah, they're, it's not in their nature to publicly protest like that. No, like I said, when they exercise the freedom of speech, it's through writing, it's through articles, it's through news, it's through satire, and they, they do that. But getting out there like militantly on the street and actually standing up to the CCP, that's that's unheard of pretty much, right? They did it in 2014, but this was a new scale. This was a new level. And it was inspirational for the whole world to watch. And it worked. I mean, not nominally in the beginning, the you know, the the leader, I guess we can call her, Carrie Lam of Hong Kong, she she quashed the original bill the extradition bill into mainland China that would effectively take a Hong Kong person that commits a crime and allow them to be able to be extradited to to China, right? So let's say a Hong Konger commits a crime in uh, the Philippines. Under this bill, they'd be able to go be tried in mainland China when they get extradited or extradited from that country. They quashed the bill. They, they won, right? But as a joke, you, you watch it and then immediately what Beijing does is say, nah, let's introduce this new national security bill. And this time you don't get a chance to protest <laughs> right. against it. It's over. It's done. 
10 times worse than the previous bill. So the reason that this, like that you mentioned, not even being able to fly through there was so scary mm-hmm. to me is because, A, I could imagine it makes me scared to ever fly through there again. And like mm-hmm. my uh, my wife's family is from Vietnam and her dad uh, was put in prison by communists and had to escape from prison and get their family right. on a boat over here and stuff. And he hasn't been back to Vietnam since then because, you know, he's technically AWOL from the military and, you know, he's afraid sure. that they'll put him in prison and stuff. And it made me wonder, I mean, like your wife, I would imagine, has to be nervous about ever going back. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it goes very deep, but basically of how outspoken we've been, even as a team, me and her. Yeah. I mean, she's on your channel all the time. Yeah. She's tipped out around it a lot more than I have, but she... She's been very much, I can, I, she won't be mad at me saying this, she's very much in support of what I do um, and very much in support of uh, a democratic China. I mean, if you've, she spent seven years in Macau learning all about all everything that's happened throughout Chinese history in English. She's seen the, the whole picture. She knows. She, she went through brainwashing through elementary school and high school and stuff, but she was able to, to break away from that. And she's not sympathetic to the regime whatsoever. So for her, it breaks her heart that she can't go back. I mean, they would hold her ransom. I'm not even joking. Sure. They would hold her ransom. So she can't see her family. She can't see her friends. No. I mean, they have to come visit us in the U.S., right? Or we have to find neutral ground, basically, whether it be Taiwan or Japan. And the reason I'm saying all this is because I think a lot of people listening to this are probably not super familiar with this, or maybe they hear some, they see some headlines, and they kind of skip over it because it's international news, and... I want people to understand that it is an actual like humanitarian crisis and yeah. and if you care about freedom and equality like most people listening to this do like you should feel bad for the Chinese people who are suffering under this stuff and it's not getting better it seems to be getting worse like from what Much you worse. described it seems like and and there's just shift in your content like if you watch your stuff you know from you and Winston were riding your motorcycles around like documenting you know all these places like you said very like kind of wide-eyed optimistic like wow look at this cool place we're in you know really a couple years ago it seems like this is real shift in your tone and Mm -hmm. and and attitude and it seems like that kind of mirrors a shift in the chinese government's tone and attitude until you talk to other expats that left like business owners and things like this that left at the same time you think you're crazy because you're like, did I did I change or something? I, I've been here for like 10 years. Did I, did I just lose my mind and I just can't deal with it anymore? And then you talk to everyone else and everyone else left at the same time for the same reason, you know, whether they got shafted by their business, uh, business partners and stuff because of a local shift of xenophobia, whether it be local policies that didn't allow them to operate anymore, uh, whether it be just the ne- just the feeling on the streets because of most Chinese people are super nice and awesome, right? But there is a certain element when the government can turn on that tap of nationalism, they'll do it. And they'll do it for a certain reason. It's to take eyes off of domestic issues, right? And that's just not a nice place to be in a, in a country that you've tried to immerse yourself in and had such a good time in and made you know lifelong bonds with people that all of that can be tainted immediately because big daddy leader of the CCP decides that it's time for everyone to rise up against the, the rest of the world. China loves to play, you know, the, the Chinese government loves to play the victim the victim mentality. They use the victim mentality all the time. The whole world is against us. I love reading their, like, state propaganda that, like, you know, is like, uh, once again, the West has, you know, chosen to align against the People's Democratic <laughs> Republic of China right. in an effort to destroy their sovereignty and, you know, <laughs> right. poor it me. Reads like, it reads like Mao Zedong era Stalin stuff, yeah. you know, that the rhetoric hasn't changed. Right, it's the same. I mean, there was a period, I mean, I remember, like, back in, like, 2010 or something, there was quite a bit of comedy on TV. There are some really funny shows out there, kind of like discount jackass type things. But you could turn on the TV and it's actually kind of like hopeful. It gave you hope like China's not becoming more like the West, but at least people are able to express themselves a little more. You go to live live shows and stuff. There's like you, you, you're into music and stuff. There were metal bands, punk bands and stuff that were popping up. Beijing had all these cool underground metal clubs. A lot of those are gone now, right? And what you wanted to see was more and more of that stuff with Chinese elements, bringing their own culture into these mediums. And now it's just completely wiped away, right? You see the most vanilla media of all time. A good example is like the rap of China. They saw these rap shows just blowing up in like South Korea and stuff like this. 
and initially they banned it. They were like, no, you know, we're not going to have this. This is insidious stuff. This is not for our Chinese people. This is an impure. But it just got so popular that they eventually kind of bought into it they, and they promoted it. But it's so it's so censored and so boring to see outside of the talent of these rappers. When you listen to the lyrics, it's basically like propaganda at this point. It's it's cringe. And do they do they know what they're doing? Is it like, well, we this is really our only option or you talk to some of the more underground musicians and stuff. They know what's going on. They're not stupid. Um, They also know that if they're going to be financially successful in any musical industry, they're going to have to. It's like trying to make music in, in the 80s in the Soviet Union. There's a lot more nominal freedoms on the street, but at the same time, there's still the same censor board looking over lyrics. Right. It's kind of like that. That's all been brought back. And it's a shame. Yeah, it, it's just it, it, it's it's interesting to see how, you know, it seems like our, our idea was of engagement. Like, well, if we engage with China and we establish these, you know, trade relationships and so forth, then China will become more open and democratic over time like the Soviet Union did. And it seemed like that worked until it didn't until G like, I don't know, what was it, five years ago or something? He was like, nah, fuck this. Right. I was the first one to buy it. When I got there, it was like, my, I was doe-eyed. I was like, this is going to be at least part of our future. China will be part of our future because this is an untapped market. Not not just in terms of business. It's an untapped market of people that are willing to like change and open up. It's exciting. People have had, people got money for the first time. They're going to start pursuing other things. There's going to be a blossoming middle class that's going to want political change at some point. Look at Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan under the KMT, people like to pretend the previous government, you know, the nationalist government that fought against the communist government in the Civil War. People like to think that that was automatically a democracy. It wasn't. It was a brutal, awful, horrendous dictatorship. It was a terrible government. Chiang Kai-shek would love to see today's China just without the hammer and sickle, right? The previous leader of China. He would be super pumped because what it is, it's like a basically an authoritarian fascist state with 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 a, a semi open economy. Right. What we ha- what we had, though, was the framework of democracy, the framework and the bones of democracy in Taiwan. When the, the nationalist government ran away from mainland China to Taiwan, they cracked down. They had the white terror. It was horrible. It was it was a brutal dictatorship. But People were able to start a kind of a grassroots movement. It was already there. It was, there was there was a uh, even a fake democracy was enough for it to kind of get off the ground, and people had enough. And there wasn't even a super violent uprising or anything against it. The problem with with China is that when the West did give market access to China, and when Chinese people were getting money and all this stuff was happening. All it did was allow a communist government with no framework of democracy, with no framework of potential freedom, was it just allowed the the Communist Party of China to say to their people, now you owe us. You owe us because we allowed you to have money, right? There's no dialogue about how like tens of millions of people are starved to death under the same government that Mao Zedong instituted in China. There's no dialogue of that. They'll say, ah, he made a couple mistakes, right? What they say is, we aren't necessarily deserving of everything. China used to be really poor, but look at how quickly we've grown because the Communist Party of China allowed us to have this. And that is the narrative that most people believe, unfortunately. In that, you can give money to people, you can give this you know, kind of Western dream that eventually they'll democratize or people will start to appreciate you know, the idea that there's something else out there. But at the end of the day, the framework was always there to just reinstitute very authoritarian policies again, and then now people are satiated because they have enough. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. 
Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like chocolates. Yeah! Down! The Wrath of the Buzzard. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Do people call you some sort of like Western stooge or like, you know, Western uh, chauvinist or something like that for saying this stuff? Because I've noticed a sort of weird pro-China kind of sentiment among some parts of America that's kind of troubling. Yeah, and that's what makes me so heartbroken, to be honest. I feel like it is a very lazy thing to do to look at China on the surface. If you've never been there, you look at China on the surface and you look at these gleaming cities and these buildings and these infrastructure projects thinking that, hey, why doesn't my government do the same thing? Not realizing that America, let's use America as an example. America is like steering a ship. It's not direct. It's not direct. It's not a go-kart, right? You can't just go left or right. You steer a a ship. And there's framework and democracy and a constitution of all things that actually allows us to make changes over time that don't, you know, maybe it's not best in that moment. Like a China can make this massive highway that needs to go somewhere, right? We can't do that because of bureaucracy and things like that. But it's necessary to have checks and balances and things. And that's something that people, I think if you don't understand the basics of how your own country works, let's say some, some of these Americans, they'll look and salivate over a place like China because number one, they're being fed soft power propaganda. They're only allowed to see the best gleaming image of China. And number two, they're sitting here in their own kind of misery that they've maybe caused themselves or their you know, lack of motivation or whatever. And they say, I wish I had a big daddy government that could just make things happen for me, not realizing that America is much more socialist than China is. Much, and I say this, people people don't understand. America is 10 times more socialist than China is. China has almost no social policies. If you're a poor person in China, you don't get help. There's very limited subsidized housing. There's very, you don't get free healthcare. If you're sick and you don't have any money, you die in China. I, I've been they, to rural Guangdong and it is a shithole. it is a shithole like it literally looks like the aftermath of like a bombing raid and i asked and i asked these people like why why do the buildings all look like this are these what why are these old they're like no no they're like 15 years old yeah they're just like made with such shitty materials and workmanship that they fell apart in like 10 years and there's garbage everywhere and it's just it literally looks like somebody dropped a bomb on there nobody gives a shit about those people no and that's the majority of the country 
I think people feel to re- fail, fail to realize this. They think the entire place is urbanized. This is like an hour outside of Shenzhen, which is a massive city, like bigger than New York. Yes. Like an hour outside. It looks like someone dropped a bomb on it. And I'm not exaggerating. And you're talking about one of the wealthiest provinces. Right. I'm sure it's, yeah, I'm sure it's way worse. Think about central China. Yeah, it gets so much worse. I mean, you're talking about places where people still have dirt roads and are cut off and are eating rats, right? They go harvest rats from the, the cane sugar fields. That's that's life for a lot of people in China. The majority is what you're talking about. The majority of Chinese people live in conditions where it's just this industrial wasteland. It's a huge over-exploited area where they build really terrible quality cement block buildings. And people live day to day, kind of cut off from the rest of the world. The air burned my eyes. There you go. There you go. You know, I'd be standing there outside this factory and there'd be like some big, thick cloud of white smoke that would blow over us. And I'd be like, ah, oh, I'd have to close my eyes. And they, they didn't they didn't think twice about it. I'm like, is this normal? And like, is what normal? Right. Like the smoke and like, oh, yeah, whatever. I'm sure. You, yeah, I'm sure you've seen it. There'll be buildings that are just belching out this like almost smells like burning plastic yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody and it cares. It just hurts. No, no one cares. There's kids running around. Yeah. And the people building all these gleaming buildings were guys not wearing a hard hat or even shoes on bamboo scaffolding. I'm sure people fall off those buildings every day and nobody cares. Right. Like you've talked about in some of your videos, you know, that of of people like just walking past some mangled corpse by the side of the road. All the time. I mean it's just a different like people can't look at China using the same lens as they would look at America, it's fundamentally a different place. I think you're absolutely correct on that. And I also think that these a lot of these Americans that look to China as this gleaming example of the future, if you're looking at that through the lens of like, I wish a government would do more for me, you're looking at the wrong country. <laughs> right. You're literally, because if you're the kind of person looking for that, because let's say I, I don't like my life in America, I don't have enough, blah, blah, blah. You're absolutely not going to like China. Because China will trample you if you don't work your ass off or make those connections or make that money. You're like an ant. You're an ant. Absolutely. And and then the other side of that is people who, you know, if I'm ever critical of the CCP, and as you've talked about in your videos, there's a difference between Chinese people and the CCP. These are There's some overlap, but they're not the same thing. If I'm ever critical of the CCP, there's people who roll their eyes and say, well, America's just as bad. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, I'd love, I'd love to have a discussion with those people, but the majority of the time, no, those people have never been to China, right? Or even pay attention to China, or even pay attention to China, right? They like to use that; it's a very convenient thing. Be hypercritical of America. We're allowed to, right? Go for it. Do do it. It's your right. It's your even oblig- obligation. I can say to be critical of aspects of your own country because that's how things improve. You cannot be critical of China, so. You, by having that argument saying, oh, well, America's worse, if you're saying that China is better in that aspect, you've already proved yourself wrong because you can't say that in China. So, for example, the Chinese equivalent, more or less, of, say, Facebook or WhatsApp would be WeChat. Yeah. What happens if you and I have a conversation on WeChat where we're critical of the CCP? I mean, it it probably takes a little while. What they're going to focus on more is a group chat. So let's say we have uh, 50 people in our group chat, which people do. People have up to upwards of 1,000 people in their group chat. If we start talking in there, absolutely it's going to get shut down. They'll probably, I think they, they signed over a law where it's like um, the leader of the group chat is responsible for everybody's speech. I remember when that happened, actually, because people would post in like memes of like, uh, they try to make like Winnie the Pooh memes to make fun of Xi Jinping and stuff like, just really on the surface, like on the nose stuff. But what would happen is like the leader of the group chat would be like, guys, can we not do this anymore? And it was a huge shift. It was like very 1984. Everyone started self-censoring. And if you wanted to sabotage someone's group, you would start going in there and doing like sending like anti-CCP memes or whatever, you know. And then the group leader would be like, oh, I'm, I'm shutting this right. down, you know. There's a lot of fear. And that doesn't happen here. You can go on Facebook and talk all the shit you want about the American government, as you should be. As you should be. But the, the thing is, that, that proves to me that the, the soft power is working. And I, you said something really important earlier, is that this, the Chinese Communist Party is not, are not Chinese people, right? To quote Xi Jinping, the, the eternal leader of China, we must never separate 
the people from the party. And that's literally why the Chinese government hates people like me. It's that's why they hate people like Ai Weiwei. It's why they hate dissidents, because what we do is to separate the Chinese Communist Party from the people, because I know how horrifically corrupt and disgusting that government is all the way down to the bottom level. I'm talking about local party officials, like in tiny towns, all the way to the top. To survive in the Communist Party is to be evil or is to co- cooperate in evil, to, to, to be complicit in evil things, right? And I'm not saying that as like a, it's like anti-communist propaganda. I'm saying that because I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, you, to survive within the Communist Party, you have to be complicit in evil acts. So to say that every Chinese person is complicit in that is not fair to me. Because not everyone's in the Communist Party, right? People have to survive. If I was Chinese and born under the Communist regime, I would probably also not, not only be brainwashed, but I would also be like, you know what? I still got to survive and have a family and feed my kids and stuff. It's not their fault. China, China, China is not our enemy. Right. The Chinese government is the enemy of its own people. And a lot of the people, unfortunately, don't know. And the real poison comes from these Westerners that think they see the reaction on the Internet, like these very hyper-nationalist Chinese people. I mean, I don't want to say that they don't know what they're doing, but you got to think about it from a different lens. From day one, they've been brainwashed in their education system that everybody hates China and looks down on China and thinks that Chinese people are not even human. And they think that uh, America is the best and will complete would, any opportunity would blow up China and all this kind of stuff. And they don't have access to, to Western media because of the Great Firewall. Not only that, but limited access to, to proper English education. It's all about test taking there, right? So most Chinese people don't have a very good command of English. It's not like your European country or something like that. So they can't participate in the global conversation. They've been fed bullshit their entire life and taught hatred. I mean, they bring five-year-old kids to the, the Japanese war museums. Japan did horrific atrocities to China. Rightfully so. We should remember that. We should always, always point the blame at the, the, the leadership in Japan at that time. And what happened and to learn from that, just like we do with the Holocaust. But you don't bring a five-year-old to look at like maimed bodies and babies being flayed and stuff. That's a five-year-old. You're teaching a five-year-old to hate something they don't understand yet. But that's what China does. And that's what the Chinese government does. And that's that's what they use to their advantage. So when you have these Westerners championing this this like system or whatever, they're deluded because they're seeing the hyper-nationalist reaction that these a lot of these Chinese people have been taught to have when they jump that firewall. Right. And China's done such a good job creating media for those people to see when they do jump that firewall. The Chinese people, they'll have, let's say it's a foreign, uh, let's say it's a white guy, right? A white guy that's promoting all this kind of soft power stuff. You bring a Chinese person that's kind of like excited. They jump over the firewall. Maybe they speak a little English and they're like, yes, I'm finally on YouTube. And then the first thing they see is this soft power stuff and a white guy saying it, right? That's confirmation bias all, all of a sudden. Right. They're like, okay, I, I jumped over the firewall. This isn't too bad. Like, they probably block YouTube and Facebook and all this stuff because, like, we have our own versions of it. They start making these excuses in their heads. But a lot of these Westerners in the comments section might be duped by seeing these very pro-Chinese people. It's not necessarily their own opinion. It's just what they've been raised to say, right? And the, my biggest supporters and a lot of these dissidents are Chinese people, right? It's Chinese people that not only have they, some of them have left and ran away because either their parents got in trouble for speaking out or whatever, but it's also Chinese people in China that can't say anything, right? It's people that send me thank you letters and like support me on Patreon and stuff, send me emails and they're like, I wish I could do what you do. We need to do something, but thank you for for sticking your neck out and doing it, right? And that's what gives you hope. Have you gotten any sort of opportunities or, or, you know, outreach from the mainstream media to talk about this stuff? Because you, you do such a good job of it now that you're back in America. I mean, it seems like such an important message that needs to be told and you're so good at it. Is that starting to happen at all? Or are you still just on YouTube or how is that working out? When I broke some of the coronavirus stuff, because I've been watching it since the beginning. Yeah, I watched it. Happen. I know I knew I kind of knew what was going to happen in terms of like when I heard the coronavirus broke out in China, I knew how it was going to be dealt with. Anytime something happens is there's a clean sweep. I was like, they are absolutely going to try to hush-hush this for a very long time, and it's going to get out. You broke a ton of stuff months before everybody else did. I remember reading all of it or seeing all of it on your channel, and then I would read it weeks or months later and go, (laughs) oh, yeah, I I remember that. (laughs) Right, right. And that's not from an expert. This is just from a guy that's been there and knows what's 
what's probably gonna happen. And just reading it's shit just, on public websites. Because I speak Chinese, right? Yeah. It's I don't know why the mass media I lost so much respect for a lot of mass media after that because they would only no one's reached out to me except to like write smear pieces. I remember was it Forbes? Was it Forbes? I think it was Forbes. Did like a hit piece on me about like make it why I did a video about like why it's difficult to make Chinese friends. And I talked about the divide between the North and the South, how I had so many friends from the North because it's more in line with like casual friendship, drinking, eating together. Whereas in the South, it takes time. Well, clearly you hate Chinese people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. (laughs) I can't believe that they would run with this. Right. And look at its title. It was almost like I was reading a hit piece from like Chinese state media or something. Right. You know, it was very disappointed. And then I was I was ultimately more disappointed because the only time mass media started reaching out was when I broke this coronavirus stuff. And so you had CNN call and they had all these like whatever. But they they don't like what I say. Right. You know, I'm when I bring up the Chinese government being complicit in this, because I didn't say they did it on purpose. I said, but there's a reason that authoritarian dictatorships hide these things because it literally challenges their rule. Nobody likes that. Nobody wants to talk about that. So I got calls from, I don't know, 12, 12 different news agencies and a bunch of other people. I think only National Review or something ran with ran with my story, but I don't even think I talked to them directly. Maybe it's just an email or something, but everyone else was like, you know what, this doesn't fit the narrative. And that's where I ultimately lost faith. I was like, you know what? I didn't lose faith in democracy or democratic values. You know what I lost faith in was that fucking mass media is dead. Yes. It's just dead. Yeah. It, there's no reason for it to exist anymore. There isn't one. There's people like you. Right. What am I going to get out of CNN that I can't get from you or your equivalent in some other field 10 times better? You know, you know what you're going to get is just sensationalized bullshit. And you're going to, it's going to be just like doom and gloom. Like the world is ending. Everyone like hide in your house. Right. That's basically like what, that's what I read on the news. Yeah. It's like just absolute trash making mountains out of molehills completely ignoring actual relevant things that we should be talking about. Um, and I just lost so much faith and I just realized it's just a dead medium anyway. There's, I'm not an expert on China. I, I, won't, I won't call myself an expert on China, but at least I lived there for 10 years. Isn't, isn't that interesting? Like there's plenty of people who know the history of China better than you do, I'm sure. Of course. You know, but you're an expert on China in the sense of um, interpreting it through the lens of an American to other Americans. Sure. I think you're an expert at that. But it's it's interesting that like the standard, and I, and I mean this with all due respect, because I would say this about myself too, but like the standard is so low in the mainstream media that like literally just not lying or exaggerating is exceptional. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's where you get your participation, the ribbon or whatever. It's like, I didn't lie. Like every time I read or see something about something where I actually have some expertise on it, I'm like, what the fuck were you looking at? Because that's totally not what happened. Sure, sure. That's what pisses me off about all these like China experts that work for, for mass media. What is it, What are you talking about, China experts? They'll say the most nominal bullshit. China's experienced rapid growth since 1979. It's like the most bullshit on the surface stuff, right. you know? We're some actual insight. Used to see it like a little bit more like BBC, they'd send over investigative journalists and stuff to try to sneak in somewhere and actually expose something. And it was good stuff. You don't really see that anymore. And to be fair, now it's a lot more difficult. It's much harder. Yeah. It's much harder. But they don't harder, even try. Sure. They don't even try anymore. Yeah. Well, it's strange to me, and maybe there are 10 more of you that I'm not aware of, but it's strange to me that nobody other than, you know, your your friend and counterpart, Winston, really is doing what you do. And it seems strange given what a giant country China is and the opportunity on YouTube. It seems strange that there aren't a hundred of you. Sure. There are a lot of, um, without naming names, there's a lot of YouTubers that will, they're effectively CCP mouthpieces at this point. And I won't say that they're getting any financial incentive for that. What I will say is that they are protecting themselves while living in China. There's a difference though. When you go, when you live in China and you point out things, um, you're not responsible for pointing out everything. If you're just making entertainment, you're making entertainment. But when you go out of your way to like completely parrot the CCP narrative for what I think is like a a safety net for Chinese people to end up on the the wrong side of the Internet, so to speak, 
to me, I find that immoral. That being said, there are a lot of people that do what I do now. There's a lot more Chinese people doing it. Um, their audiences are quite small because obviously we've been in the game a lot longer. Uh, I think you'll see more people like us come out of the woodworks. Uh, there's a couple of people that have contacted me recently because they're not scared anymore. They're, they've either left. There's, it's crazy how many people will join my patron or send me emails and say, listen, like, thank you for saying this because I left China about the same time you did and I thought I was going nuts. Everyone had the same feeling when they left. So if you're still in China, like long term, let's say you're just teaching English, or you're making like little puff piece YouTube videos or whatever, you can't step out of line at all. Sure, it's there's no leeway anymore. You're going to have to like basically, without you know better words, suck the dick of the CCP. Yeah, I it's mean, pretty much the only way you're gonna. Yeah, otherwise survive. they they might literally throw you in prison. Sure, like my friend is literally in political prison right now. And, and by the way, I should be clear, um, I've sort of taken this conversation in the direction of, of being critical of the CCP and stuff, but I wouldn't even say that that's the focus of your channel. And no, no, and, no, no. and I don't think it's the most interesting thing about your channel. Sure. You know, if I was to, you know, characterize you, I would consider you very pro-China, not pro-CCP, but pro-China. Yes, so incredibly pro-China. For anybody who's listening, I, I just kind of wanted to make that clear so i don't mischaracterize you or your channel sure it's just the way i think the way things have been going right now specifically in relation to the chinese government's influence especially abroad which is what people are paying attention to right, right now so i understand why that's i understand why that would be a focal point of the conversation but yeah i mean i'm very i'm very pro i'm pro chinese people i'm pro china i want to see the best for china and so am i too i i loved going there like it was sure a great opportunity and i'm really happy that i got the chance to like i said you know meet and work with chinese people like to, to actually mm -hmm. work with chinese people was really cool and i'm happy now sure. that you know when i read stories about factories in china like like well i've spent many months at factories in china like i right i, I can talk about this a little bit um so i i just kind of wanted to step back a little bit and make sure that people don't interpret this as sure. a china bashing conversation no absolutely not absolutely not i mean the best time of my life right why do you think i care so much <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and 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 you know i care like i said because of my wife's family sure i mean they're you know refugees from you know, running from communism and, you know, they're not the only ones. There's literally hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese Americans with the same kind of story. And so I, as, right. as somebody who does believe in freedom and equality, and like you said, there's, this is, there's this a, uh, a lot of tension right now between, you know, China and the West. I think it is important for Americans to understand this. You know, the TikTok thing was a big one in my world, mm -hmm. you know, working in social media and stuff like that. And, it's just, it's disappointing that people seem to aggressively run from the truth. Like, if you think that the Chinese government won't use this apparatus to spy on you, you're high. I think it's, I think it's more selective delusion. Like, they, they don't want to believe that. Right. Because they, they like it. It's a drug, right? TikTok is great. There's a lot of amazing content on there. Sure. But if you think that they, I'm, I don't know if they have used it to spy on anybody. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. But... If you think that they won't, you're out of your mind. You're absolutely out of your mind. I mean, like the, if you see the farms that you was the, with WeChat, they have live like People's Liberation Army members watching conversations on scrolling screens. I mean, I'm talking about thousands of people in a room. Wow, I haven't right? seen this. That's crazy. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I I was sent I was sent these videos of this stuff by Chinese people in China when I was there. Right. It was they're like look at what's going on even they were a little alarmed you know <laughs> so from that perspective of course tiktok's doing the same thing you know what i'm doing i'm actually doing a bit of a social experiment right now i'm posting a bit of counter counter content on tiktok right see what happens not overtly anti-ccp or anything but some some parodies of some things that i see on chinese social media and stuff just to see what happens because their moderation tools are so suspicious to me when you go into their like terms of service and like uh, what's it called like the what you can be banned for mm -hmm. compared to something like YouTube and stuff, it reads straight out of like a Chinese social media app. This you made the video you made about this is fascinating. If anybody is mm -hmm. interested in this, you should watch it. 
I'm going to, I'll tell you what's going to happen is you are building uh, data points in their facial re recognition database and they're going to sure. deep fake you soon. And uh, yes. you're just suddenly yes. from your own account, they're going to start yeah. posting stuff. It's like, I was wrong about the CCP. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even joking. That's kind of the goal. Top 10 you know reasons I mean? that I was wrong about the CCP. <laughs> They're kind of just playing into my hands at that point because that's some that's some stellar YouTube content there. Right, right. Yeah, no, you know what I noticed is when I started posting stuff, There's I've watched the shift of like the, the Chinese nationalist kind of army that has to go out there and like subvert this content. As soon as I post this stuff, like I, a good half of the comments are these people now that have sought me out immediately. Like, oh, this guy is, this is some ridiculous stuff. Oh, this guy has already been canceled. Like, uh, his wife is not even Chinese. She's Vietnamese. <laughs> just coming up with like wild, weird stuff. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just to try to like discredit me. It's, it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to see what's going on. Well, I have one last question for you, which sure. has been on my mind a lot as far as like the future of China. We talked about some of the environmental stuff and like, I'm worried about, especially now that the government is going the wrong direction. I'm really worried about the next say 20 years of China because yes, they have lifted, you know, a billion people out of poverty, which is amazing and wonderful. And that's great, but it has come at tremendous cost in terms of the environment and civil liberties and all this stuff. And the chickens have got to come to roost, come home to roost soon if they haven't already in terms of all this stuff. Where do you see this headed? I know projecting 20 years is difficult, but what, what, where is this headed? Oh, this is such a tough question because, I mean, at the focal point of everything, you're going to see the Chinese government try to preserve itself, right? Which is the only thing cost. they care about. It's the only thing that matters. So, And this is literally what they say in their official communication. Yeah. <laughs> this is not yes. us making it up. No, 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 no. First off, this, this theory of like lifting all these people out of poverty, who do you think put them there in the first place? I mean, it's the same regime. Right? Valid point, <laughs> yes. So I don't think they should be congratulated. I think the Chinese people should be congratulated for lifting themselves out of poverty with the proper tools that were given to them. Right. And some restrictions being lifted, that is not to be credited to the Chinese Communist Party. That being said, if you're talking about 20 years in the future, you see a lot of these like environmental initiatives. Oh, China's going to be carbon neutral. Look at all these uh, windmill farms, and all this kind of stuff. Dude, I literally, when I was living in Inner Mongolia, there were windmills, right? Huge like wind turbines. Let me guess, they didn't and, move? Well, they didn't move. But <laughs> guess what? They did, they did move when there were officials in town. So I was in a taxi. And I was like, oh, it's moving. You know, it was kind of kind of as a joke. And he goes, oh, yeah, the government officials in town, they plugged it in. There was literally electricity running to the windmill because they got government funding to build a husk of a windmill, more or less. And they had like, I guess, some sort of hub motor or something just to run it like slowly when the officials were in town. They're like, check. Yeah, they're doing great. That's the level that China goes to to try to fake it to the rest of the world. So. If we use Chinese data to say like, yeah, they're carbon neutral or, oh, yeah, they cut down coal emissions. By the way, they're building more coal plants right now. Um, oh, yeah, they hit all these green goals because they had these green initiatives and all these leaders went there and signed the official data forms. What does that mean? Nothing. Right. So, yeah. So if you're saying 20 years from now, I don't see I haven't seen China get cleaner yet. I, I in my entire life there, I barely saw it get clean. Maybe some more litter gets picked up in the cities to make the city center looks clean, but the, the, the rest of the country looks the same. The only thing that might help is moving industry out of China if the, if the West is decoupling from China, to be honest. Yeah, which I, I hope happens forever. I mean, that, that ultimately will help the Chinese people too, because that gives the CCP less leverage. Right, less legitimacy, right? Like if you don't have that daily bread to, to hand out and say, oh, thank you, CCP anymore, then where's your power, right? So... Hopefully, hopefully, I see China democratize a little bit more over 20 years. But unfortunately, the whole leadership and design of China has been written in the, in the other direction now. So it's almost like basically chi the Chinese leadership right now is prepping its people by saying, we're going to have a really tough time in the future. But everyone hold out. It's us versus the world. And as long as, you, as long as you're on the good side and you're proud to be Chinese, we'll take care of you. And I don't see that changing in the foreseeable future. I do see China trying to get use the Belt and Road Initiative to get more and more nominal allies with developing countries. Are those really allies or are they stooges? Nah. I mean, you say, I say allies nominally because allies in that China owns you now. Right. Doesn't mean that they're going to fight for you. Right. But 
like in Sri Lanka, they own the port, right? You're going to start seeing in these developing countries, you're going to start seeing the PLA start springing up in some of these ports that they've bought through basically debt traps for the Belt and Road Initiative. You're going to see global influence happen, not in this, oh, uh, the CCP always says, oh, we are a peaceful nation. We stay out of other countries' business. You're going to see exactly the opposite. It's going to be neocolonialism. It's already happening. And I hate to be one of these guys that I hate. I hate following like social media or watching news that tries to, you know, portray doom and gloom, but it is going to be, get much worse before it gets better. Or at least there's no reason now to think that it's going to get better. No, th- that's the thing is there that hope, that golden hope when you're there during that booming period of China is not there anymore. That that hope that China is going to be receptive to the rest of the world and start being a team player is not there anymore. You know, whether you want to put that blame on, you know, Western chauvinism or whatever, like you said, or or the Chinese government, it in reality, that's not there anymore. The only hope you can have is that, you know, the rest of the world puts enough pressure on China through economic decoupling that at the end of the day, China doesn't have much of a choice but to behave, right? Just just behave. That's about it. Well, that's a sad note uh, to, to leave it know, on, but uh, here Sorry. we are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I really didn't uh, intend on going down that road so much, but I think it's good that we did because this is stuff people need to hear. It's important stuff. Again, for the sake of the Chinese people as much as anybody else, like this is not absolutely us getting up on our soapbox and, you know, uh, trying to talk about how awful, you know, the uh, our opponent in the Cold War is like we care about the Chinese people. We, we care about the welfare of the Chinese people. So. In any case, definitely, uh, if you're interested in China or just other cultures in general, I think you do such a great job of storytelling. Thank you. You know, and I would really urge anybody to watch your channel, even if they don't care about China, if you just want to learn a little bit more about storytelling, give it a watch. Uh, Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to uh, plug or promote before I let you go? Yeah, if you want to stay like up to date for like current event China stuff, we do a ADV podcast is called. It's like a biweekly one hour show. Every Monday we do ADV China, which is us riding around motorcycles. Uh, we do we talk about usually about China Chinese societal issues around Tai when we're riding around Taiwan or Vietnam. We're just in Vietnam, um, and then yeah, my channel got low eighty six. I'm don't know where I'm going. I'm trying to do some more comedy stuff these days, <laughs> lighten everyone's mood because it's like such a sad time right now. Your funny stuff is really funny, by the way. Thank you. So Thank I, you. I, I feel like I should have done a better job of kind of bringing that out. No, I, I feel like we had a very necessary conversation. And I think sometimes we forget how necessary it is because people, a lot of people just don't pay attention to what's going on. So, but yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. I really want to say thanks for, for you having me on. Cool. Well, uh, I appreciate it, and I will talk to you soon. All right, and now let's answer a few questions. If you have a question that you would like me to answer at the end of my next podcast, just send me a DM or drop it in the comments or whatever. You know where to find me. From Avery Kuwellar. I don't know how to pronounce this. But uh, essentially, so there's um, quite a few details here, but what it comes down to is every time this person's in a band, every time I feel like we're getting somewhere, something always happens that sets us back, and COVID has been a huge setback. What can I do to get my music out there and noticed? What can I do to get signed by a label and get set up on tours with the big bands? Well, uh, again, I would say... None of these things are a goal in and of themselves, right? Like getting signed to a label doesn't necessarily mean anything if it's some bullshit like fly-by-night label that's really just a kid in his bedroom. That doesn't help you, right? And getting set up on tours with the big bands, that's cool, but you can actually lose a lot of money that way. Uh, This happens all the time. You may not know this, but even pretty big bands lose money on tour. So those things are all great, and I understand why you're interested in those. But what I would say, rather than saying that you want to do these kind of arbitrary things like get signed by a label, I think what you want to do is start with a goal of like, how big do you want your fan base to be and how much money do you want to make from it? Like, what is what is the thing that you really enjoy doing? Like, do you enjoy playing shows to large crowds or do you enjoy writing and recording music? Start there and just kind of, Don't assume that things like labels and booking agents and tours and all that stuff are necessarily required for you to do that. And then start asking yourself, how do we get there? So how do you get your music out there and noticed? Well, getting your music out there is easy. There's DistroKid and CD Baby and, you know, any number of other services that will distribute your shit to 
every platform. And as far as getting noticed, well, that's a big question. Uh, I think that I have talked about it enough in videos that I'm not going to repeat everything that I've said in those. But what it comes down to, I think, is first of all, your music has to be at least noteworthy in some way. And second, you got to put out a lot of content that is entertaining and adds value to your audience. Fundamentally, adds value just means either you're educating people or you're entertaining people. And if you're in the music business, then you know you are part of the entertainment industry, which means your job is to entertain people. So I would say put out lots and lots of content that entertains people. Uh, consistently, consistency matters a lot too. You've gotta be on your grind every single day. You should be posting every day on every platform. Uh, and you need to do this for years and it's going to be hard, but that's the way it works. You got to consistently be making music and putting it out there. You can't kind of dabble and put out an album every two years and post on Instagram once every two weeks and hope that it works and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, there's no one simple answer to this, but consistency, hard work always pays off over time. So make sure you're putting yourself out there. Make sure that you're being honest with yourself about whether people are receptive to what you're doing, whether that's your music or the content that you use to market it. If people aren't, you know, if you're getting two likes on, on whatever it is that you're doing, that means people don't like it. And I know that that can be, you know, a, a bit of an ego, uh, a bit of a blow to the ego to admit, but... The sooner you admit it, the sooner you can figure out what people weren't liking about it and go about fixing that, and then you will be on the road to success. So I hope that helps. These are very broad questions. It's hard to answer in this format, but uh, I hope that helps, and I will see you all next time. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you wanna help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really wanna support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!